just to echo all those sentiments that you guys shared, we all felt the exact same way. I, I feel like God did something sort of unique and special up there this year. It never ceases to amaze me. Like, we just got in a car and drove for about an hour and came to a room with a bunch of people that I've never met. We all sang the same songs. We, we sing up in San Jose, and you're preaching the same gospel, and you're treasuring the same Lord Jesus Christ. And it just never gets old, you know, that overwhelming reality of how big the church is, how great her Savior is, and how massively um, he has impacted all of us. So up in, uh, up in San Jose, we have been experiencing something really uh, different uh, at church. We, in the last 12 months or so, we've seen about 20 people baptized, which is the most we've ever had in the history of me being the pastor there. And it's been people coming in off the street going, what must I do to be saved? And it's, I think, a combination of just the upheaval of these times that we're having. People are asking themselves hard questions or looking in the mirror and looking for answers. And we have a Christ who saves. And we have a God who reigns. And we have a foundation you can build a life upon. And it's been amazing watching it shape people. But with that comes this very strange situation where we have a church full of people who know literally nothing, nothing about the Lord and so we are praying as elders, like, you know, where should we, where should we start to, where, where do we need to go now, given this phase of life that our church is in? And it was like, well, we need to go to Jesus, and let's maybe park in the gospel of Matthew for a while, just because there's so much teaching by Christ there, there's so much um, foundation setting truth in what he lays out for the listeners, and that'd be a good place to start building with the church. And so we just finished going through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's kind of amazing explaining to someone for the first time that lust is a sin. <laughs> like, them looking back at me the way you're looking at me, like, are you serious? Like, even thinking with lust is a sin? Yeah, you know, thinking with lust. Um, but one of the most fun things to talk about, what I'm hoping to talk about with you this morning, was prayer. And how the scripture teaches us to think about prayer. In fact, how our Lord Jesus Christ himself teaches us to think about prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus begins talking about prayer by teaching the disciples how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, you know that prayer. He gives them the content of the prayer. And he seems to suggest, when you say, give us this day our daily bread, that you pray that prayer every day. That it's supposed to work itself into the, the pattern of your prayer life. And I think a big thing he was doing there was teaching you what to focus on. So is it good to memorize it and say it? Yes. But I think even more than that, even more than just having the words in there is, is thinking about what the words are talking about. You know, my heart is supposed to want every day when I wake up for God to hollow, hallow his name, to glorify his name in the world, on earth like it is in heaven. And that's meant to shape how you pray. That's meant to teach you to pray, praying like that over and over. So as you continue through the Sermon on the Mount, you get to Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus makes a, an interesting transition back to prayer. And in this transition back to prayer, he's not quite as concerned about the content of your prayer as he is about the added, your attitude in prayer and how you think about God in prayer. He wants to, I think, aim directly at the normal things that we struggle with when you ask, why don't I pray more? You know, <laughs> I'm sure you all pray. But if you're like me, you sometimes wonder, why don't I pray more? I feel like I'd be praying more. And he goes directly at the fundamental questions of that struggle for us and for our good. 
So the main point of the text today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, is that we ought to pray because God answers prayer. (laughs) We ought to pray because God answers prayer and his example teaches us how to live. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Please give me two minutes to kind of help us situate ourselves into the context of Matthew so that we can hear the scripture when it's read in the context, in the flow of thought. So the book of Matthew begins with a profound assertion that Jesus is the king of Israel. He starts by giving us his whole pedigree, his genealogy. He is the son of Abraham, son of David, the Christ according to the scriptures. He then starts laying out a case for how Jesus' very conception, birth, early life in some manner of speaking, fulfills and relives the patterns of Israel's history, that he is somehow the fulfillment of Israel's history in a manner of speaking. He is the representative and leader of Israel. Just as Israel was brought out of Egypt, so out of Egypt God calls his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so forth. So then he goes up to a mountain, sits down, and begins to teach this king. And what we've seen in this sermon is that Christ has come to establish a kingdom upon the earth, and in doing so, he's giving the people the terms of what looks like a covenant. So in the old covenant, God said, this is how you relate to me. If you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you do these things, you don't do these things, you'll be cursed. And you get a very similar vibe in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a covenant exactly, but it's like the terms and conditions of our relationship, And one of the things you notice in Matthew 5 is that the expectations of this law, in a manner of speaking, that he's given us, uh, raises the the moral expectations profoundly. So he's like, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even look with lustful intent in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if your eye causes you to sin, you should rip it out. You should cut off your hand. And the language is very, very extreme. The language is very, very profound. And it's interesting that in the middle of that teaching, he also peppers teaching about not being anxious, about not worrying about tomorrow, and about how to pray. So now he's going to bring additional clarity on how to pray. As I said, he brought it up in chapter 6, brings it back up in chapter 7. Let's now humble our minds and open our hearts for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 14. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. Sorry, I'm stopping at verse 12. This is God's word. Um, So, what I want to look at today from this short text is three things. I want to look at how this teaches us to relate to God in prayer, how we should relate to God in prayer. Second, I want to look at what this says about how God relates to us as we're praying. So, what is his attitude towards us? And finally, I want to ask the question, how does that interchange teach us to relate to other people? So looking down at our text, it's easy to notice a couple of things right out of the gate. The first thing to notice in verse 7 is that Jesus is being 
really, 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 really clear. What this is claiming is not complicated. The one who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and for the one who knocks, it will be opened. Zero qualifications. If you pray, God will answer full stop. That's the first thing you notice. Second thing you should notice is what happens in your heart when I said what I just said? When you read this text, you know, given our current historical situation, there's so much heresy, there's so much bad teaching on prayer. You read a text like this, and I, I don't know about you, but I feel an inclination in my heart to immediately begin explaining it and caveating it away before I've made sure I thoroughly understood what it's actually saying. Whenever that happens, whenever I find myself resisting what the scripture seems to obviously say, I have to stop myself, I have to repent, and ask myself again afresh, am I willing to follow the truth wherever it goes, or am I gonna tell you what your word can or can't mean? And it's uncomfortable to do that. But I want to challenge you, when you engage a passage of scripture that says something that makes you uncomfortable, to sincerely ask yourself, am I willing to be corrected in my own thinking? Because if you can't do that, you're not reading your Bible right. The only way to read this book and learn from it is to do it humbly. So, as an exercise in intellectual honesty, I think it would be good to try and hear what this is saying first, and then we'll qualify it second, Okay. <laughs> So let's look at what this does in fact say. Jesus says, verse seven, ask. Okay, ask who and ask what? Well, in the context, verse 11 seems to clearly indicate that the one we're asking is our Father in heaven. And what we're asking for in verses nine and 10 is just something that we need, something general. So it stands to reason that what Christ is talking about here in verses seven and eight is prayer, asking God, not seeking God, knocking, looking for God. What else do we see? We see in verses seven and eight, two parallel statements aimed at emphasizing the same very clear point. In verse seven, Jesus commands us, ask, seek, knock. And he tells us that if we do it, we will find it will be open to us. And then verse eight seeks to reiterate by clarifying that he isn't only talking specifically to the disciples sitting in front of him. He says, for everyone who prays this way. Now, of course, I think he clarifies in verse 9 through 11 that he means all of his children, not everyone without exception, those who are united to the Son and call him Father. Um, but he refers to all people in all places and all times who come to God as Father through the Son. So he's talking about you, how you should pray. Let's observe some more things that maybe aren't as obvious in this text. I think Christ describes here three different orientations towards God. And it's possible that these three things are meant to just be understood synonymously. Um, that could definitely be the case. What I'm about to say might be overly subtle. <laughs> but uh, my son and I just went on a, a missions trip to an Indian reservation a couple weeks ago. And we didn't have any access to our phones. And so, well, I should say, I didn't have any access to my phone. He doesn't have a phone. But it was interesting because... I was reading this text, unable to digitally communicate with people, and I started thinking about what this actually says. So if I want to talk to someone, and they're close to me, I just ask, hey, what time is it? 
If I want to talk to someone and they're far away, I need to go seek them, try to find them. If I want to speak with someone and they're on the other side of a locked door, how do I get in there? I have to knock. Is it possible that Christ is saying, no matter how you feel in relationship to God, you should pray? Whether it feels like he's right there in the room for you, you know, with you, or whether it feels like he's far away, or whether it feels like you've blown it so bad that you are on the outside of a locked door and you do not belong in there anymore? If you think about this in a visual way, I think that makes some sense. Um, Don't let how you feel about how close or far away God seems affect whether or not you pray. If you feel like he's there, pray. If you feel like he's far off, pray. If you feel like you are on the outside looking in, pray. Now, of course, we know in real life, theologically, that God is never actually far away from us. Acts 17 is really clear about that. He's near to all of us. But that is something that the Psalms in particular acknowledge as part of our human experience, this feeling of like, where are you, right? No matter how you feel about God, no matter how you think he feels about you or how near or far he feels, none of that should be a hindrance to you seeking, asking, praying to him. I think that's question number one that Jesus wants to address to the human heart. When you think of reasons that you don't pray, I would venture that one of them is that God feels far away, right? One of the most basic ones is that secret voice that lives inside every single one of us. And this is one of the, the great things about going to something like a men's retreat and talking to strangers. It's like, oh, you struggle with that too? It's not just me is that little voice in your head that says, why would God listen to you? You're a sinner. Why would God listen to you after what you did? Why would God want to even talk to you, given your sins? Jesus says, no matter how you feel, pray. Go to God. If God actually sees and knows everything all about me, Why on earth would he answer my prayers to which Jesus says, whether you feel like asking someone who's sitting right next to you, someone far away, someone behind a locked door, go ask, and he'll answer, he says. God's not like a person. God doesn't get mad at you and then turn his back on you the way we might be tempted to do. God always wants to be found by you. If you lack faith, if you have sinned, If you feel broken by what you've done, he wants to be found by you. Psalm 51 is really, really clear about this. If you are, listen to me. If you have sinned this week and you are stuck in your sin and you're feeling guilt and condemnation because of your sin, do you know what Psalm 51 says? The offering that God wants from you is a broken and a contrite heart. And someone who is in that posture of heart, it says, he will never despise, ever God's love is open to all who humble themselves and repent. You are never too far away. So that's question one that all of us deal with, I think. Should I pray if I feel like I'm far from God? To which Jesus emphatically answers, yes, you should. If you ask, you'll receive. 
Question number two that all of us deal with that Jesus is going to respond to with clarity and simplicity is this. Does praying actually work? If I pray, will God actually answer me in the realm of real human experience? That's absolutely right, son. (laughs) Faith like a child. There it is. Could you just imagine Jesus with the children and he's, he's trying to teach them Bible stories and you have kids just like spouting up like, because of God. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> Does prayer work? The short answer to that question is yes, prayer always works. God always responds. If we ask, we receive. If we seek, we find. If we knock, it will be opened in verse eight. That's what it says. What it doesn't say is that if you ask, he'll give you whatever you ask for. If you seek, he'll give you whatever you're seeking. This is where we need to reflect on what this does and doesn't say. We know from scripture that God has his own agenda for the world and for your life and for mine. We know that for human beings to pray powerfully and effectively is to learn to desire and seek and knock on the doors that correspond to the will of God. And I think you learn to do this by praying. You know, if you pray the prayer, God, can I have a basement full of freezers and all the freezers are full of ice cream? You know, you start to feel ridiculous at the beginning, especially as you read scripture. And so what Jesus is clearly not saying is that he's just gonna give, her, give God will give you whatever you want, and like as if God is a vending machine and we just push the prayer button and out pops money or something. I know that most of you know that, so let me try to press this a little bit deeper. God promises to always answer our prayers, but that doesn't mean he's going to give us whatever we want. We all accept that. But one of the reasons I think that we think God isn't answering our prayers as we pray is because we're really bad at noticing. Let's think about that for a second. When we become fixated on God's answer being something specific, like when we go, God, I, you know, a, a great example of this. Early in faith, so I used to be a drug addict. <laughs> I used to be a drug addict and God saved me 15 years ago. And now I'm the pastor of a church. Uh, that's not sure how that happened, but here we are. And, you know, I remember in those early days trying to not use cocaine anymore. And I would pray and pray and pray, God, take this. I don't want to struggle with this anymore. Take it away, please, Lord. Just deliver me from this sin. Deliver me from sin. And it was good and right and totally appropriate for me to want that, yes? But fixating on not being addicted to Coke anymore, I missed the fact that what God actually promises is that if by the Spirit I put to death the deeds of the body, I'll live. And as I'm struggling with this cocaine addiction, God was killing my pride. God was answering my prayers, just not the little tiny version of it that I was asking. He was dealing with something much deeper and more profound in my heart. He was answering that prayer more gloriously and more helpfully than I knew how to even pray it. That's one of the reasons that we don't see it. Sometimes we're myopic about what it is that we're asking for. We fail to see the bigger picture of what God is doing. Sometimes, and I want to say this gently, and I want to, hopefully you can hear this from me gently. 
sometimes we pray for things that God, like it's clear he oftentimes wants to do the opposite of what we're asking for. So, when God brings trials and pain and suffering into our lives, there's a lot of really clear biblical texts that talk a lot and with like really clear, specific instruction that he uses that stuff to purify your faith, First Peter 1, to make you complete James chapter 1. I mean, there's like 50 of these things in the New Testament where it's, this is all for you, like this is all an instrument in his hands. And when we start to suffer, it's like we forget that and we're just focused on take, take this away, take this away, take this away. And we never think, is God, what, what is God using this to do in me? God often uses my suffering, my pain to teach and instruct me, to make me godlier, to make me more mature. You know, you think about in Romans 5, where it's like suffering produces character. It's really interesting when you try to think about that literally. What is that doing? As I suffer, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm having to force myself to trust him to new depths, to, tr- to believe him with a new sense of urgency. And that's why as the character is being produced, it also produces hope. Because the more I trust him, the more hope I find. And the more hope I find, the more love is in my heart because of the Holy Spirit that's shed that love abroad. It's kind of an amazing thing. When we feel pain, when you feel pain, oftentimes the first thing that comes next is the devil running in to try to use that pain to get your eyes off of God's word, off of God's promises, off of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sovereignty over your life. Or maybe it's just your flesh that does that. But God always answers prayer. Pain is oftentimes the very door that leads us into fellowship with Christ. There has never been a time in your life where you have prayed and God has ignored you. It just isn't the case. I mean, I'm sure he said no to you. He said no to me. But he's never ignored you. This is the first thing that Jesus wants to show us about prayer is how we ought to relate to God. He's actually listening and he's actually answering. And he's really clear and not ambiguous about it at all. So because that's the case, you should always pray. So let's now transition to how God relates to us in prayer from the mouth of Jesus. So Jesus goes on in verse 9, beginning with the word or. That conjunction connects what's next with what came before. Ask, seek, knock. Or do you think that that's not how it works? Do you think that God's more capricious than you in your evil ways? Christ asks, asks, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? What Jesus is saying, he's inviting you to imagine, you being fathers, you knowing children, if a little toddler toddles up and asks you, can I have a cracker, daddy? Are you going to give him a snake? I mean, that's a, that's a graphic. <laughs> hey, Ben, how's it going? If, I, if, I, if you ask me for a cracker, do you think I would give you a snake? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, never mind. I, I, the point has been undermined. <laughs> the... Uh, the idea that a father would do that is repulsive, and I'm a little embarrassed right now. <laughs> I swear I've never given him a snake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
But, but the points, it's, it's, a, it's a simple one to see. Like, you're, you guys are fallen creatures. You are sin-cursed creatures. You've been forgiven, yes, but you're still in your flesh. And not even you guys respond to requests from your children like that. How much more then does your good, godly, gracious, kind, super abundant, loving God in heaven treat you? When you pray, even your most misinformed, self-focused, unbiblical prayers, and we've all been there, I'm sure, praying for the kingdom of me, even when you're praying that way, God listens to you like his child, and he responds to you like his child. He doesn't punish you for praying wrong. He gives you bread. Question one was, does God actually hear me, even if I feel far away? The answer was yes. Question two, does prayer actually work? The answer is yes. And now we arrive at question number three. Why does God do that? Why does God listen to us and answer us? And the answer is because he's a good father, not because you're a good son. Your hope in prayer is not in you. We have to just put that away, that, that somehow my relationship to God is gonna be... Uh, Better is, is, is probably the right word. If I was just godlier, it's like, no, my relationship is as good as it's going to be because of Christ. Christ is the foundation of your hope. Christ is the reason God hears your prayers. Christ is the reason your sins are forgiven. Christ is your reason for expecting an answer when you call out to God. It's not you. It's him. Why would God do this? Because he is a good father and he knows how to give good gifts. Now, I know not all of us have had loving, generous fathers. I'm sure in this room there's probably examples of people who didn't have loving, generous fathers. But you've all witnessed a good and a loving, generous father if you've been in the church for any length of time. You've seen what it looks like. And the question you're supposed to ask yourself is, if even fallen human beings could act this way, how much more does God act this way towards me? God doesn't just give generously. It says he gives good things. He gives good things to those who ask. That, there's that joke about, um, you know, don't pray for more humility or God will give it to you or don't pray for more patience or God will give it to you. And I'm kind of at that point where I don't really like that joke anymore because it's, it's suggesting that he's going to give you a bad gift. <laughs> but he's going to give you good gifts. He gives good gifts to his children. And so if he brings things into your life to make you patient... Yeah, it might be a difficult test at the moment, but it's going to yield a more patient, faithful, loving life. Why wouldn't you want that? God is the ultimate good father. Do, some, do fathers sometimes put their children in difficult circumstances to teach them something? Yes. We had a difficult circumstance at the soccer game yesterday, which will not be discussed in detail here. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, you want, you want these kids to learn and grow, right? To become men who love God and who are strong and courageous and who want to protect and provide and be everything God wants for them to be. And that, inc that involves stretching them out of their comfort zone because they're not babies anymore. If we being evil know how to do that, how much more is our Father in Heaven competent and capable to do that? So why should we pray about everything? We should pray about everything because God wants to give us good things he wants to bless his children. And Jesus gives a qualification on how we access these things. And it's pervasive in the passage, but it's easy to miss. 
He says, how much more will your father have a give things to those who ask him? James 4 tells the church, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you do so with wicked, evil motives because you're sinful flesh. But if you want God to answer prayer, you have to actually ask him. <laughs> you have to actually pray. You have to actually just do it. And when you ask him and you pray according to his will and his priorities according to what he defines as good, when you pray that way, you start to notice that there's all kinds of coincidences that start happening in life, right? So I, I'm not up here to solve all the mysteries of prayer. There, there is a sense in which prayer is a mystery, right? There's things that you've probably prayed for for a long time that you know are good and for whatever reason God doesn't do it the way that you hope he would or you expect him to. But it sure is true that as you pray, you start seeing a lot more strange stuff. And when you stop, it kind of goes away. I don't know how to explain that. That's just an anecdotal observation about being a Christian. Here's my point. It's not always easy to see the effects of our prayers and the way God works through our prayers, especially because we tend to be myopic about it. But if you pray, you will see effects. If you pray, you will notice things, things that you probably missed before when you were not devoted to prayer. And this brings me to my last point in verse 12. So Jesus says, you know, how this teaches us to relate to others. Given everything I've just told you about how to relate to God and how God relates to us, given all that, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do, to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or to say that differently, this is basically what the rest of the Bible has been trying to say this whole time. Do to others as you would have them do to you. What is this saying? It's saying that you should treat other people the way God treats you. In the same way that the Father's fundamental disposition to you is love and goodness, you should treat other people like that. You should treat all people like that. This verse is called the golden rule uh, because it's really familiar and it's easy to miss some fairly obvious things about it. The most significant is that what probably is primarily in Jesus' mind about this text is justice, doing justice to each other, dealing fairly with your neighbor, being a person of integrity with how you talk to the people in your life. The Lord invites us to introspect in this commandment. You know how it feels when someone takes something that belongs to you? You know how that feels? Don't do that to other people. You know, when someone cuts in line or someone forms an unfair judgment about you without talking to you first, you know how that feels? Yeah, don't do that to other people. <laughs> you should think about how you've preferred to be treated in situations like that and treat other people the way that you wanted to be treated. I kind of feel like the overly aggressive way of saying this is like, just don't be a jerk, you know, be nice. <laughs> Whenever you deal with people, try to put yourself in their shoes and think about what would be the most helpful, most loving, most just way to respond to them. But I don't think that gets it all the way. I think that just leaving it there, just taking this in isolation the way we often do, just sort of leaves us with do what's right in your own eyes. Which, I think we've all read the book of Judges. That's not a good idea. Don't do that. What's the real good gift that God has given us? Well, this teaching, you know, and, and this teaching has shown up in other places. You probably read or come across the fact that like 
in Egypt, there's like versions of this saying. So it's not altogether unique what Jesus says here. What's unique about it is that the underlying foundation for this command is the love of God and the sacrificial self-giving of Christ. What's the real good gift that God has given us? It's the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And when Christ tells you to treat others the way you would want to be treated, he doesn't mean in some sort of petty, superficial way. He wants you to think about it in terms of the gospel, in terms of the gospel that rips up our desires and motives and attitudes down to the bone. I think the golden rule is about committing yourself to walk in the example of Jesus. You know, it, it flows from his doctrine of prayer, this command to do unto others. So if you've never seriously prayed before, I would encourage you to start two different places. The first place to start is commit to speak to God honestly. Say what's actually in your heart. There's no special magical way to do it. <laughs> There's no language you have to adopt. Um, one of the uh, interesting things about becoming a Christian as an adult is you notice little quirky idiosyncrasies that maybe others don't notice, like the filler language that finds its way into prayer. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Where you just say the same word over and over again as like a placeholder. So you don't have to do that if you don't want to. I'm not telling you how to pray. I'm just saying if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. That's not part of prayer. It's, it's speaking honestly to God, being honest about what's really in your heart. I completely lost my place. <laughs> Be honest. And then the second thing is commit the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 to memory. I actually think if you want to learn how to pray, you learn by listening to other people who really know how to pray. I was just telling someone up here at the beginning of service I feel like I learned how to pray by listening to Mike Birchfield pray. Do you guys know who Mike Birchfield is? I assume he's been here a couple times. Yeah, so as a young pastor, Mike would take me with him to the hospital and we'd kneel beside the bed of someone who's catatonic and dying and he'd go, like who's not a believer, and he'd go, uh, Lord, this person can't hear my voice, but that's not an obstacle to you. Would you regenerate their soul and make them new? And I'd sit there next to him like, I don't know how to pray. <laughs> Your God is bigger than my, my vision of God. And, and, but listening to him pray like that, I learned how to pray. You know how Mike Birchfield learned how to pray? By listening to that guy, Jesus. Um, you begin by listening to Jesus pray. And Jesus teaches us how to pray. And there's that great prayer in John 17. And of course, there's all the Psalms, which are God-inspired prayers. But... Um, Listening to those words, letting them shape your internal life. But just to encourage you, you know, I've seen God answer prayer in some pretty radical ways, if you're wondering whether or not you should pray. I'm sure at this church, there's, if I just passed around a microphone, we would hear some pretty incredible stories about the way God has answered prayer. You think that's true? I haven't met most of you, and I know it's true. <laughs> Because God is a good father who loves to give gifts to his children. And because if we ask, he answers. If we seek, we find. I've had the privilege of watching people who are, not me, other people who are hopelessly addicted to drugs become clean, repent of their sins, get baptized, and are now serving as deacons in our church. 
we had a guy die and then come back to life as we prayed for him. And what I mean specifically is his heart literally stopped beating. And then it started beating again. I've seen marriages so on the rocks that I did not think it was going to last throughout the year transform into marriages that I seek to emulate because they're so strong and grounded in Jesus Christ. I've just been sitting in the background praying and praying and watching and praying and watching and praying and watching God do miracles. I mean, there's probably a, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but do you know what I mean? Like things that just, you're like, there's no way this is going to end well. And then God just shows up in the middle of it and it ends like better than you'd ever imagine. And it happens as people are praying, as people are asking our good father to give good gifts because he's good and because Christ is Lord. I've seen amazing families leave our church and think to my, you know, move to other states or whatever and think to myself, like, how are we ever going to replace that family only to have a new family that's just as amazing, different, but just as amazing, come and replace them. It's just, it's just incredible. I have a, a, a book of prayers. I'm sorry, I'm going long. I will stop after this story. I have a book of prayers in my house from right before I was a believer towards, to just after of prayers that that woman wrote down for me. And it's kind of amazing to flip through it now and see how he's answered every single one. So I'm just saying this because I want you to pray. Your father is good and he loves you and he wants to give good gifts to all those who ask him. And, you know, I really struggled with what to talk about <laughs> coming down here because I didn't don't know you super well. I'm always aware of what the needs of the church are. But I thought to myself, who doesn't need this reminder sometimes? So anyway, thank you for letting me share. Let me pray in closing. Um, God, thank you so much for these brothers and these sisters. Um, thank you that we have Jesus in common. Thank you for this precious gospel that not only saves us, but makes all of life better and new and glorious and full of the spirit and of your grace. And God, I pray for everyone in here, if they've not seriously prayed before, God, that they would begin to pray. And for the people who do pray, God, I pray that you'd meet them richly in prayer today and in the coming weeks. And for those of who are the prayer warriors of this church, every, every church has them, I pray, God, that you'd make their prayer ministry powerful and effective in bringing down the powers and principalities of this world and building up the kingdom of God in our midst over which you reign. So God, thank you for your great love. We are unworthy of it, and yet here it is. We have it because of Jesus. Pray that we would treasure it today as much as we've ever done. In Christ's name, amen. So do I just do a benediction now? Is that, okay. Well, guys, it's been really great getting to know those of you who I've spoken to. Everyone who's come back from preaching here goes, that church is amazing. Those people are so sweet. And I, I have to be totally honest. I was kind of like, our church is really sweet, isn't it? You know? But you guys are super sweet. You are a really sweet group of people. So anyway, thank you for having us. It's great to be with you. God bless you. Go in peace.